Good morning, Force View. I'm Lois, and I'm on the teaching team here, and so Doug gets a break today. Um, I thought what I'd like you to do is, if you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app, if you could open to Matthew 6, we're going to be looking at 1 to 18, and it will really, I will have some of the scripture up on the overhead for you, but it'll be really helpful if you have that open because I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit with it. And also because, um, yeah, there's both personal and corporate applications to what we're talking about today, so it'll just keep it a little simpler. But because I'm a tangential thinker, anybody else like that? I am. I'm always thinking all around in circles about things. So today, we're going we're gonna to do a big circle and come back to Matthew 6. I wanted us to look at some scriptures. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Today, a number of historical circumstances conspire to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So I think you can tell from those different verses there that there's a bit of a theme going on related to prayer. What are your best times and places to meet alone with God? Perhaps for you it's early in the morning. I listed a few up there. Maybe it's on the go. Maybe you have a favorite den or deck chair where it's just your special space with God. It could be walking, hiking, cycling, out in nature. Or you could be one of those wonderful people who actually observe a Sabbath rest. You unplug technology and you spend time alone with God. May your tribe increase. These scriptures that we looked at in the text clearly show us that Jesus modeled this life that was completely saturated in prayer. I mean, it could be early in the morning, it was late at night, at least on one occasion, it was 40 days um, in the wilderness where he's praying, and sometimes just all night, and anything and everything in between. And in the middle, middle of all of that, somehow, he had an intense ministry life. He was healing the sick, teaching large and small groups. He was casting out demons. He was fielding arguments and controversy from the Pharisees. He was raising the dead and walking on water and multiplying bread. So how did Jesus ever get these conversations alone with the Father about everything that he was doing and experiencing and feeling? But the record is very clear in Scripture that he was constantly listening for and to the voice of his heavenly Father by the Spirit. 
And it's, it's very reassuring to me that Jesus' disciples didn't ask Jesus, Lord, would you please teach us how to heal? That would be so exciting. Could you teach us how to preach and refute the controversies that the Pharisees are gonna throw at us? No. They said, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? A couple things come to my mind there. This whole thing that they saw something in Jesus' life of prayer that wasn't like anything else that they'd seen anywhere. Maybe John the Baptist. They saw that there was something similar there. But certainly, it was different than what they were seeing in the synagogue. And that's actually kind of a comforting thought for me, that prayer is something that we can learn. Because in this room, I'm assuming that many of you, if not most of you, would consider yourselves Christian. You would say, absolutely, along with scripture as being utterly the bedrock of our faith, prayer is right up there as one of the pillars. Um, you're totally committed to it. It's what distinguishes, distinguishes us from a social service organization. It's the spirit of the living God at work through the word and his spirit speaking to his people. But at the same time, I'm also going to assume that most of you, like me, have had moments of just like saying, I can't do this. Prayer is, I just feel guilty about prayer. I never pray enough. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm just going to assume that many of us feel that. At, at one time or another. Well, good news this morning. This whole Christian life thing and prayer itself, it is not a one-man show. It is not a performance. It's not a show at all. In fact, it's this incredible two-way conversation that we can learn and practice and grow in. And that is a very exciting thought. Uh, lately, I've been tracking a British pastor named Peter Grieg. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he has helped spearhead 24-7 prayer. He, he's a, in the UK, and it's now spread to, I don't know, over 40 nations. And he has a pretty basic formula for how to get our personal and corporate prayer lives together. I like this. Keep it simple. Keep it real. Keep it up. And I was hoping actually this morning that I could use that as a bit of a framework for how we look at our text this morning. Spiritual disciplines themselves have gotten a bit of a bad rap in recent times. Things like prayer and fasting, I don't know about you, but we're not crowding to prayer meetings. We're not fighting for space. You hardly, I hardly hear about fasting. I hardly hear about a number of things. So, but I've been happy because lately, I've been hearing about these pockets of life where people are starting, there's been like a resurgence of early church practices. This, and I've, I had a recent conversation with someone here at Forest View and it was very encouraging. And he said, you know, I used to think in my old church that it was because this is so dated, no one's gonna come out to this. So I just thought if we had better programming. And then I thought maybe it would be the worship. That's gonna change everything but none of that cuts it. The church moves forward in God's power and God's way, or it really doesn't move forward at all. So, how do we keep it simple? I was at a women's conference uh, back in February. There are probably a few of you were also at this conference. And the keynote speaker had been both a children's pastor and a youth pastor. And in one of their um, um, 
exercises with the kids, one of the part of the programming, they were teaching these young children how they could learn to pray and hear the voice of God for themselves. And as part of the programming, at the end of that session, they, they invited the parents and they, the children had an opportunity to come up to a mic and share about what they'd been learning, how they'd been learning to hear from God. And so, of course, you know, one little sweetie gets up and she says, I'm learning how much Jesus loves me. And, you know, everyone's excited. And then another little kid comes up and says, you know, oh, the, the Jesus, Jesus is wonderful and, and the Father really loves me and it's all good and everyone's just thinking this is great. And then this little six-year-old guy, little guy gets up and he's an honest young man, a few words, and he gets up to the mic and he says, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> and they're going, what? He said, honey, what did you say? I'm a hoarder. And that's it. And he's sticking to the script. And so, you know, the leaders are kind of looking at each other. What are we going to do with this kid? Like, this is weird. Anyway, his group leader finally, um, she goes up to the front and she puts her arm around him and says, honey, do you even know what that word means? And he says, yeah, I don't. God told me I don't like to share my toys. That's like a hoarder. So I'm going to share my toys from now on. You know, isn't that great that there's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit speaks every language. He knows just what we need to hear in the way that we need to hear it. And this discerning little disciple is right on track with God. Like, to him it was simple. He heard from God, he confessed, and that was it. So, message received out of the mouth of babes. What a contrast that was to some of the audience that Jesus was facing in Matthew 6 and in the whole Sermon on the Mount. It is kind of disturbing that there were a number of people in Jesus' audience who were very, very brainy, very educated. Uh, they knew their Torah back and forth, but somehow they had trained themselves not to see the glory of God at work through kindness, through humility, through mercy and generosity. In the face of the beauty of people being miraculously healed and set free, they saw only a false prophet who didn't follow the rules, who touched unclean people and spoke with kindness to fallen women. You know, what, how does it happen that what starts out as a sincere desire to follow God, to love God, can twist and morph into a religious spirit. Where it becomes about the ritual, about banking something with God so you have a bargaining chip, or studying scripture for information so that you can control people. When does it stop being about God and simple obedience to him and what he's asking us to do and become about power? and public image. Now, jumping into Matthew 6, Jesus addresses three key areas which every good Jew in his audience would absolutely affirm as central and core to the faith practice. Giving alms to the poor, praying, and fasting. And of course, Jesus doesn't disagree with any of that. He says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, but once again, as Craig unpacked for us in Matthew 5, Jesus does this complete 
flip about, about this. He speaks about this with authority as one who deeply knows what the Father likes and what the Father doesn't like. And he emphasizes this through repeated patterns. So, when you do good works, don't do it to be seen by others. Don't do it to be honored by others. If you do, all you get is the good opinion, the human approval as your only reward. But instead, do it secretly. The Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then he moves on to, and when you pray, don't make a public show of your prayers in church. Now, he's not, he's not saying don't pray in public, but he says don't pray in public and elsewhere to be seen by others. And don't babble like pagans, like keep reusing and repeating phrases over and over again, like somehow God enjoys that or he missed the point the first time. Possibly the only result is people's good opinion. Instead, Jesus says, do this. Find a secret place. Pray privately to the Father who is unseen because the reward will be that you will be truly heard and understood because your Father knows your needs perfectly. And when you fast, please don't put on the long face to show how spiritual you are because that's the only reward you're going to get. The, the Jews of the day, when they were fasting, would, would put um, ashes on the top of their head you know, to, to show everybody, I'm fasting. The result is that others might think, oh, you're a very spiritual person. Jesus says, don't do that. When you fast, just look normal, okay? So that other people don't know about your good deeds. And you will have the Father's reward. So clearly we're getting this sense that working for the approval of others is fleeting, it's capricious, it's ultimately of very little value. And it results in pride and hypocrisy, which is the opposite of humility and the fear of the Lord. So the point seems to be in these repetitions that God isn't just concerned about the offering itself, but about our hearts. Right actions with wrong motives don't cut it as acts of worship. So think of Ananias and Sapphira. So when we purport to worship God, if our affections are really for God, that is honoring. What we truly love deep down is what shapes us. Okay, so let's sort of play devil's advocate here. I mean, what's so bad about pleasing people? That's kind of how the world works, right? You, you can please God, but can't you just please other people at the same time? Well, <laughs> it is a bit of a problem, actually a big problem, if your goal is to be an apprentice of Jesus. Um, Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Imagine having a lot of masters, multiple voices telling you who you are and what to do. And frankly, they're all imperfect people with probably conflicting agendas. That is a recipe for exhaustion. And, and if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it's just really hard to hear him if your goal is to be popular and, to ag and agreeable with everyone. I know whereof I speak. 
And of course, this happens in church with the best of intentions. Um, and for me, this happens to me when I don't stop and listen, if I don't plan my stop times. Because simple means one master, one audience, just one person that I really want to please above all. So if I'm consumed with good works without taking the time to be with God in the secret place, that is a dangerous combination. In Mark 2, Jesus called the first disciples to him to work for him, to build a new religion. No, it was to be with him, to do life with him. So priority number one in the simple life is to pursue God and make it first all about him. Not easy, but that's the goal. I want to give a personal example here of how this can benefit you in a group situation. Um, uh, Bruce is going to love this. Uh, on the leadership team, we are a bunch of really different people. <laughs> we are really different. And I have to say that Bruce has done, as our chair, an amazing job in modeling respect for everyone and for actively looking to see how the Spirit of God is at work through each person. Now, we are just people. We are ordinary disciples who are seeking to walk humbly with God, and we feel the weight of responsibility to do it right. Not, of course, because we care about what any of you think of us. Oh, no, that never comes up. Um, but because Jesus died for this church, for the church, and he loves us and has plans for us. Okay, I lied. We, we, we do worry sometimes what you think of us. We don't want to mess it up. And, but as individuals, the beauty when a team of people comes together and their sole goal as best they can is to please Jesus, to believe the best about each other, and to work together and listen to the Spirit of God at work in each other, that is dynamic. That is amazing. Because what happens is you see, you see like, God will give something to Craig. He'll start something. And then it'll be Elizabeth who throws in something else. And then it'll be Bruce or it'll be whoever else is on the team. And there's this sense of click where you just feel a sense of joy and unity and peace with, what's, with what God is doing. That posture of trying to stay open, even though I think I've heard from God, but I'm saying to God, I could be wrong and you might have something else to say to me in this meeting, is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing. Of course, we're not gonna always get it right. But the recognition that we want to please him as our audience of one, boy, that gives the Holy Spirit so much room and so much rain. So that's part of what I'm talking about with keeping it simple, making it about our Jesus and pleasing him. How do we keep it real? Well, we live out of that rich overflow of our, of our secret life with God. And I think as we move into the Lord's Prayer now in this text, I think we kind of get to the engine room of what drives our life in God. So let's unpack the Lord's Prayer. 
our Father. The intimacy of Jesus' terminology is part of what made the Pharisees and religious leaders so angry. They wouldn't even spell the full name of God. Yahweh was just the, was like an acronym because they thought, no, no, God is too holy. And here, Jesus' favorite name for God was Father. Now, Father's a loaded word for, I think, a lot of us. Next month, my father would have celebrated his 113th birthday. No kidding. Just to give you some context, King Edward VII, Victoria's son, was on the throne in 1906 when he was born. Now, in case you've been wondering all the time what sort of miracle cream I use, <laughs> nothing to do with that. My father was in his early 50s when I was born, and uh, you could safely say that my parents were late bloomers. Now, do you remember the adage, children should be seen and not heard? That, that, that's a, that was a real thing? That was a real thing. So I was the youngest of four kids, and we were born within five years. My parents had to hurry and catch up, you know? So dinner time was chaotic. We were all very verbal and vocal kids, but at six o'clock, my father would turn on the radio, and it would be, and he would, I would see the fist going on the table, not slamming, but just in rhythm with his words. I want to hear the news. He wasn't talking about our news. <laughs> he was talking about world news. He wanted to hear the world news. Um, and my father was a bright man with a grade six education who, as the only son, had to leave school early and farm. And he had a temper. And as kids, we learned to be a little careful about that. And as I grew up I, and grew in God, I realized that that had an impact on my view of God as Father. It made me a little careful with him, like, don't bother God with the little things. Show some respect, keep quiet, you know, he'll, he'll tell you, he'll let you know when uh, there's something important that you should be talking about. And so, I think for a lot of us in this room, we would say, yeah, Father is a word that we've had to reclaim as we've walked with God. Now, both my parents passed away before my 25th birthday, and at the time of the last funeral, as my family scattered to their different locations, and, and I was in Toronto, I remember feeling, well, orphaned. Um, just not sure how I was going to do life on my own. But well, you know how God is. There was a turning point for me, a big one. It was in my regular reading. I was reading in Proverbs that day and came across Proverbs 27.10, which says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. It was like God, was the father, was saying that right to me. They were a direct word from my from God's heart to mine. And it was like, all right then, I know who I am. The Father heart, this is for me. I couldn't have put it into words like I can now, but I had this sense of coming under God's wing, that I was protected, that I was welcomed, that he was gonna show me more about the Father heart of God for me, and that he would not abandon me. Don't you think we all need to know, and the world needs to know, 
that heart of God for us. Our Father who's in heaven. Heaven is symbolic in the sense that it's a symbol of authority. That God is sovereign over everything. His rule is secure. I I, I couldn't find this quote. I heard this quote about some famous theologian who was asked, um, if you could sum up God in one adjective, what word would you choose? And his answer was, relaxed. I would never have thought of that. I love that. In the throne room of God, he is never stressed and he's never anxious. So when we come in prayer to the throne of God, we are coming to the source of all power and authority, the one who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And that is important. Part of the reason why when we come for worship, I would never skip worship. Worship being the songs that Cole or Christy lead us in or whoever's leading worship. Because my soul needs that reminder of who God is. And I need to sing it with all of you. I just feel like that is such a gift of the body of Christ because it's a foretaste of what heaven's gonna be like. It's absolute reality. It's singing the truth of who God is and that he's in control. This isn't easy because like you, I usually wanna rush into the throne room with my petitions right away. But then it's not almost, it's like it's not even prayer. It's more like I'm just, God is like my BFF and I'm just complaining to him. No, I need to just, for my own soul's sake, I need to stop and be reminded of majesty, truth, ultimate authority, complete control, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love. So saying yes to, being, to his being our father, yes to him being the one who controls every aspect of history, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. We want everywhere the world to know, to know through us, evidence through us in every place, in, in the election tomorrow, the results, in, in the Middle East, in, in North Korea, in south of the border, everything. Let the world see you as you really are. So a lot of this is all about getting our focus right on, on God. And then come the petitions. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we, some people have wondered about in our vision statement at, here at Forest Feet, we talk about mystery. Well, what are you talking about? There's a lot of mystery, and this is part of it. Because God isn't limited to our prayers any more than his sovereignty can be limited by anyone's evil design. But somehow, we're included in the plan of God when we pray. A prayer really does change things. Prayer in the power of the Spirit changes things, it changes people. Did you know that every, that, well, first of all, where was the church itself birthed? In the upper room in a prayer meeting. Every major revival since was preceded by a group of people, sometimes a very small group, who were grieved by what they saw around them and they thought, enough, enough. If I don't pray, nothing here is gonna change that I can see. Practicing, practice this discipline, practice praying about these big things, but also 
practice praying about little things too. Do you know, a couple weeks ago, I was chatting with Ruth Loveday, and uh, you may already know this, but Ruth Loveday is about as cool as Doug is. Like, she's just great. She said something that I think was kind of an offhand comment. I don't even think she would even remember her saying it, but it just was like, wow. And she said, you know, it's really respectful to talk to God about everything. I just went, what? Like thinking about my history, it's respectful to talk to God about everything. You know, I've done a 180 about praying about little things. I used to laugh at the, I don't know if you've ever prayed for a parking spot. I don't, don't, don't show me your hand. I might still have an attitude problem a little bit. But you know, so what if you pray about who your next life insurance agent is going to be? Or so what if you pray for, you know, a new little friend for your three-year-old granddaughter? Who cares? I mean, the, what's the worst thing that could happen? If, you, if you, the prayer is answered, you are excited and you're thanking God. If the prayer isn't answered, all that's happened is you've practiced, you've practiced praying continually, which we're told in Scripture to do. What's wrong with that? What is more relational in the long run? Telling the Father everything or waiting until there's a crisis to happen to reconnect. You know, to be clear, God is gonna love to hear from you if the only time you do pray is in a crisis, but it's just gonna be harder, harder for you, harder for me. And when it comes to our petitions, it's important to pray open-handedly, knowing that only the Father clearly sees what we, what we actually need. And because God is the ultimate multitasker, in prayer and in his presence, our wishes and our desires get shaped and realigned along with his character, with, his, with our character and our understanding of his ways. It just, you can't help it when you're with the Father. And our lives are his business. As a matter of fact, all of our life is his business. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, I find it really interesting that this verse is followed by, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think, I think the caution of verses 14 and 15 is critical to us, and why? Because I think unforgiveness is our Middle East crisis. Because we, in Christ, are to build not bombs, but bridges to our enemies. We choose forgiveness in the context of gratitude because of Christ's cross, because we've come to him at great, he has come at great cost to himself to bring us to the Father. But also because unforgiveness bears a really heavy cost. It is so destructive. Now I'm just gonna share with you what I've learned about this. Um, my own experience is, first of all, not only never to deny that I'm angry or hurt, I've learned that's a really not a good decision to make, but to run and not walk into God's presence when somebody hurts me or angers me. Um, because I have learned that the enemy's favorite tool is to keep you in unforgiveness, you and me. He wants this stuff to use it so that we won't surrender and, and he wants to steal our life from us and destroy us. He wants us to shut God out of the equation by keeping us fixed on the injury and the injustice. I, 
Forgiveness is a painful discipline. It is totally hard work. And frankly, it is exhausting when the tape of the injury replays for about the 4,097th time, and you, with gritted teeth, are praying forgiveness and blessing for the other person. I can start to feel sorry for myself. They hurt me, and I have that and all this work to do to forgive. Yep. What I can say, though, is every time, if you pursue this discipline, if you believe God, it will bear good fruit. And there comes a day, all of a sudden, when you realize, I'm not thinking about this. I haven't thought about this for two or three days. Um, You're no longer nursing it. It's become a part of you that you will never forget, but through cooperating with God, the sting has gotten pulled out of that wound. It no longer controls you and darkens everything and those around you. I think the point of verse 15 is that everyone who enters a relationship with God is only there in the first place because of God's unfailing love and amazing forgiveness. So you can think of forgiveness, I think, as the currency of heaven. To live in the reality of the ongoing mercy and forgiveness of God is to really know grace, which is never earned. So if I close the door to grace in one area, it will affect my capacity to receive his grace in other areas. And this can affect everyone around me. And I think a good summary verse for that is in Hebrews 12, 14, 15, which says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I absolutely believe that Forest View Church is called to be a house of prayer and a house of healing for the nations. Now, that's not because I'm super spiritual, because actually Jesus said it first. It's what he longs for his church to be, but I think there's a specific call on this church. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church pursued the presence of God daily and embraced forgiveness as core disciplines? Wouldn't the world be astounded and amazed and attracted? To Jesus. Finally, church, let's keep it up. And let's not be discouraged. God promises to complete the work he started in us, and he always, always keeps his word. Let's pray. Father, there's not a thing you don't know about us And so it's a mystery to us that you take such delight in us coming. But that's how we feel about our own kids. Jesus, you petitioned the Father to have this last supper with your disciples. And you know how we struggle to actually sit down together as a family in one place and to have real conversations and not just exchange texts and sound bites. Father, As we come into your presence, we're transformed. We learn to know ourselves even as we are fully known. Father, we want the world to take note that we are like your son Jesus because then they'll catch the resemblance and be drawn to you. 
that's impossible for us. But with you, Father, all things are possible. This morning, again, we remember, we take and eat what your body and your blood have meant for us. For our forgiveness, for cleansing, for restoration, a new identity, transforming selves. Would you show every one of us in this room what, what will work for us to, to be with you and stay with you, to keep you front and center. Keep us hungry for more of you. Holy Spirit, fuel our pursuit of you so that we keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it up. In Jesus' name, amen.